This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. And happy to spend the next three and a half hours with you on this really, really nice Saturday afternoon in the New York City area. Hope everyone is doing well as uh, we've got a lot going on. We've got a baseball season hanging in the balance. Another one trying to take that next step. The Olympics are underway. It was uh, Locked into that last night and early today. That still kind of gets me a little bit. Still uh, recovering from what was, in my mind, a really entertaining NBA Finals, especially those last three games. And, uh, you know, historic win for a historic player in Giannis Antetokounmpo. And now we quickly shift our focus in the NBA to the offseason and specifically the two teams here in New York and what they can do to take that next step. We have a little Olympic basketball action Tomorrow morning, Team USA, after their extremely rocky preseason camp in Las Vegas, they get going in Tokyo against France, a team that beat them just a couple of years ago in the World Championships, Uh, and then football training camp around the corner. So everything on the board today, uh, the number, as always, is one 800 919-3776. Yankees and Red Sox continuing their four-game series in Fenway Park at the top of the hour. And uh, the Mets and the Blue Jays continuing their weekend series at City Field later on tonight. After the Mets won for the fourth time in their last five games yesterday, they hold a four-game lead over the Phillies for first place in the National League East. But let's start with the Yankees because... You know, you can you can tell the signs of a team that's just not very good pretty easily. And I think the sample size is large enough, 96 games in fact for the Yankees. And yeah, they're a over 500 team. They're four games above 500. They're four and a half games out of the second wild card spot in the American League. So by no means am I throwing in the towel on this Yankee season because they're a two-week hot streak away from being in playoff position in at least the American League wild card chase. But there continues to be something about this Yankees team that is just off. And throughout this Yankee season, one of the many, many frustrating themes has been one step forward and two steps back. And that's exactly what we've had this week coming out of the All-Star break. I mean, think about it. A week ago yesterday, first game out of the All-Star break, the Yankees get the news that Aaron Judge has COVID-19, a host of other uh, important players have COVID-19, and they're going into the health and safety protocols. They're going to have to make do without them, and they have that listless 4-0 loss to the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium in their first game out of the All-Star break. And then they got hot, and then they won a couple of games against Boston with some unsung guys. Greg Allen and Estevan Florial and guys brought up from the minor leagues. And how jarring was it? How jarring was it in the Boston series last weekend and the Philadelphia two-game sweep this week at the stadium? How jarring was it to see athletic guys wearing pinstripes, guys putting the ball in play, guys hitting the ball on the ground, not directly into a shift, guys taking the extra base, Guys stealing a base. Guys stealing another base to put themselves into scoring position, to score on a base hit, or to score on a sacrifice fly. And the guys really gave the Yankees a jolt of energy. You take two out of three against the Red Sox, and then you sweep the Phillies, and then you go into Fenway Park, having won nine out of your last 12 games, 
because you played pretty well heading into the All-Star break. And you have a 3-1 to lead in the bottom of the ninth on Thursday night in Fenway Park. And you can't win the game with two outs, by the way, in the bottom of the ninth. And you can't win the game. Now think about this. In the last month of this Yankee season, you only need to go back to the final day in June, June 30th. The Yankees have suffered three of the most gut-wrenching, brutal losses you could imagine. I mean, if you're a fan for 15 years and your team endures three losses of this magnitude with what was at stake, that's brutal. The Yankees have done this in a month. Starting with the game at Yankee Stadium on June 30th, when they knocked Shohei Otani out of the game by scoring seven runs in the first inning and had an 8-4 to lead in the ninth inning, only to give up seven runs, including a grand slam by Jared Walsh, to win that game 11-8. to Brutal. Absolutely brutal loss. Fast forward less than two weeks from that game. Remember this one in Houston? It wasn't that long ago. Final game before the All-Star break. Yankees played really well on their last road trip before the All-Star break. They won two out of three in Seattle. They won their first two games in Houston and were going for a three-game sweep. And they had a 7-2 to two lead in the bottom of the ninth, only to give up six runs to the Astros, capped by, of all people, a Jose Altuve walk-off three-run home run, which was punctuated by his shirt actually getting ripped off this time, rubbing it in the faces of the Yankees and Aaron Judge, who poked fun at him just the day before. And then you go to Thursday night in Fenway Park, that 3-1 to lead with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. That would have been one of the Yankees' best wins of the season. And you know what it is? The timing with this team is never right. I mean, think about this. As you're watching that game on Thursday night, Jordan Montgomery, who's been really good, you don't want him as your number two starter, but he is your number two starter. And he's been really good. He's one of the few guys on this Yankees team that has exceeded expectations so far this season. And he did something that you rarely see players do in baseball today, and that is pitch on both sides of a 55-minute rain delay. I was shocked when he came back out. And not only did he come back out, but he gave the Yankees two more shutout innings. And he absolutely had to because you saw the bullpen that Aaron Boone had at his disposal that night. It ultimately cost him the game. So if Montgomery doesn't give the Yankees those two shutout innings after the 55-minute rain delay, I have no idea where they're going to be. But he did. And then Sal Romano, a guy they picked up off the scrap heap, gets you through in the next inning. And then you ultimately get the ball in the hands of Chad Green, your acting closer. And he's not a closer. Chad Green's been a really good relief pitcher. He's not a closer. They simply ran out of pitchers. How do you know they ran out of pitchers? Because Brooks Krisky was on the mound in the 10th inning throwing a record four wild pitches. And what happens last night? The Yankees get Jonathan Loisaga back before the game, and they get Nestor Cortez back before the game. And this is my point about this Yankees team. Sometimes you're a day late and a dollar short all the time. And this Yankees team is starting to have the look of a team that's going to continually be a day late and a dollar short. Some of that is just pure bad luck, 
And a lot of it, I'm sorry to say, is their own doing. This is what happens when you have a poorly constructed roster. I mean, be honest with me. Yankee fans, how enjoyable was even just that one five-game stretch, four-game stretch, whatever it was, the last two games against the Red Sox that they won and the two games against the Phillies when they swept them? How enjoyable was it watching guys play baseball? The way they were playing baseball. Not this all or nothing nonsense. There's a guy on second base with one out. And you ground out. But you ground out to the right side. And he advances to third base. Where something could happen. A wild pitch. A passed ball. It's just something. It's not a strikeout in which the runner stays at second base. And it's station to station baseball. It was... And look... Is Greg Allen the long-term answer? No, he's a 28-year-old journeyman. But I love what he brought to the team in just one week. It kind of reminded you of a different brand of baseball, a much more enjoyable brand of baseball. And you watch the Red Sox. The Red Sox do this all the time. Alex Verdugo, Jaron Duran, the rookie they just brought up. What do these guys do? They put the ball in play. Rafael Devers puts the ball in play. Xander Bogarts. Kike Hernandez, these guys put the ball in play. The Yankees don't put the ball in play. Can the Floreals and the Allens do that for a week or two weeks on a little bit of a hot streak? Sure, they can. They're major league players. They've gotten to this level. They're not the long-term answers. At least Allen isn't. Floreal put in a different category because he's young enough that he's still considered a prospect. But it was so refreshing to see, and it was so jarring to see. But then it just reminds you, this isn't the long-term answer either. It was just a nice change of pace. And just when the Yankees had the opportunity, thanks to these young guys filling in for the judges and the Gio Urshelas, just when the Yankees had the opportunity to turn it into something, you have another brutal loss on Thursday night in Fenway Park. And to make matters worse, okay, you suffered another brutal loss on Thursday night. So who's the number one guy you want on the mound the very next game? You want the ace of your staff on the mound. And Garrett Cole has been great his last two starts. Before the All-Star break, the nine-inning shutout at Houston, the one nothing game. And then his first game after the All-Star break last Saturday, the six-inning shutout, rain-shortened shutout against the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium. Garrett Cole had been great. But you know what? He wasn't great last night. And that's when you need your ace to be great. 2009, 2010, CC Sabathia. Yankees had lost a tough game. They had lost a couple games in a row. CC Sabathia had the ball. He didn't lose that game. They didn't lose that game. At the end of the season, Garrett Cole's numbers are going to look great. They are. He's got a 2.4 something ERA. He's got a high strikeout rate. He's clearly the ace of the staff, but you've got to be the ace in something more than numbers. When you're getting the kind of money that Garrett Cole is getting, which is more than anybody else is getting, when you're getting that kind of money, you have to win that game last night. Brutal loss the night before. You could still get out of Fenway Park. Look, a split of this weekend series in Fenway Park keeps you afloat. You've got to take this season in small chunks. Last night was a huge game. Your ace on the mound, then Boston loses its starter in the second inning. Yankees have second and third, nobody out, can't score either one of them. They score one run in eight innings off of the Red Sox bullpen, and they lose the game. You can't lose that game, and that's the story of the season. Every time they seem to be about to turn the corner, 
a brutal loss. Because the other thing about those three brutal losses in the last month, the Angels lost where they gave up seven in the ninth. They were on the verge of going on a run. They had been playing very well going into that. The Houston game right before the All-Star break, they had been 4-1 and one on that road trip. 5-1 and one if you count the Mets win in the last game of the Subway Series. So they had been 5-1 and one in their last six games with a 7-2 to two lead in the ninth. They could have gone into the All-Star break with all the momentum in the world. And then on Thursday night in Boston, one out away, 9-3 and three in your last 12. Starting to make the Red Sox notice you a little bit in the standings and getting right back in the wild card hunt. And you lose that game. And then you back it up by losing with your ace on the mound and the Red Sox losing their pitcher after one inning. It's one step forward. It's two steps back for the Yankees. And from the beginning of the season and through right now, the timing just doesn't seem right for this team. And this is the mark of a team that is what it is. It's 50 and 46. It has all the makings of a team that's going to win 84, 85 games, tantalize you just enough to remain within shouting distance of the playoff race into September and ultimately fall short of the playoffs, which will be a colossal failure for a team with their resources and their salary cap. The trade deadline's around the corner. The Yankees are expected to be active. They need to be focusing on long-term roster building rather than getting back into the race this season. The long-term roster building on this team has to be the priority for the Yankees because... The Yankees don't seem like they're going anywhere this year. Are they that far away? No, because the Yankees are never that far away. They're the Yankees. They still have a lot of talent on their roster. They're a couple of moves away, but they have to be the right moves for beyond 2021 as they start to tweak things ahead of the trade deadline. Yanks and Red Sox, the 405 game today. So uh, that's underway in less than an hour from Fenway Park. Jamison Tyone, Nathan Evaldi. Tyone plays in perfectly to how I view the Yankees right now. It's one step forward, two steps back. He was one of the biggest disappointments the first month and a half, two months of the season. He's pitching really well right now. He's got his ERA down to 4.6 after a brutal start. Uh, Nathan Evaldi, the former Yankee, of course, the all-star who they beat at the stadium in that rain-shortened game last Saturday. So that's a good pitching matchup. Tyone's been pitching really well. If you could get this from Tyone, if Garrett Cole can continue to be the ace, if Corey Kluber could ever come back, if Domingo Herman could pitch the way he pitched in April or May, then you could have the makings of something. But that's the thing with the Yankees. It's like a ship that continues to spring these leaks. Every time you plug in one of the holes, a leak pops up somewhere else. The Yankees start playing well and hitting well before the All-Star break. And then at the All-Star break, Aaron Judge, their All-Star, goes out COVID-19, health and safety protocols. Then they bring up these guys who give them a jolt of energy and, and, and some life in the lineup and some athleticism. And then all of a sudden, the bullpen falls apart and Chad Green can't close out a game in Fenway Park and then the next day when you need your ace when you absolutely need your ace to stop the bleeding and get things right back on track because here's the thing 
Thursday's loss would not have been that bad if Cole and the Yankees turned around last night and shut down the Red Sox lineup and even this series at a game apiece. If you looked at this four-game series in Fenway Park, a split would have been more than enough to keep the Yankees afloat in the wild card race. Well, now in order to get a split, you need to win the final two games, including this afternoon with Nathan Evaldi, the Red Sox ace on the mound. Cole last night, five innings pitched, three runs, 104 pitches in those five innings. And it reminded me of Cole's performance in the Yankees' final game last season. It was all right against the Rays in game five when the Yankees lost when Chapman gave up the home run in the eighth inning. It was an all right performance by Cole. But in that situation... You needed more from him. You needed more from your $36 million ace, and you needed a lot more from Cole last night. Last night was not the night for Cole to not be on his game. And I know he's going against the first-place team, but his previous two starts were against first-place teams in Houston and Boston, and he shut that them down in both of those games. He needed to do that last night because you've got, you can't look at each one of these games in a vacuum, right? This is a team. This is a continuous season, and you had to understand the situation for the Yankees going into last night's game. Thursday night was awful because the Yankees are one out away from getting right back into this thing, and not only do they lose, but they lose in brutal fashion. You could have quickly fixed that and flipped the script with a strong performance from Cole last night. The Yankees didn't get that. After the game, Aaron Boone was asked if he thought Cole was sharp. No, I thought Garrett was good. I thought his stuff was really good. I thought early on he had a really good curveball. I thought the fastball was excellent. He made some really big pitches because they did they did make him work. I mean, that's that's the one thing they did. They had some long at bats against him. You know, Renfro had a long one that ends in a, you know, infield hit. So they were able to, even though they weren't able to break through on him, they were able to ding him. He he bounced back with a really strong, quick inning in the fourth. Um, and then they strung together some at-bats where, you know, and then Devers got a mistake down, I think, that that he he didn't miss. So, but overall, I thought I thought Garrett threw the ball well. It's just they did it enough of wearing him down and making it difficult and, and were eventually able to break through. So You lose the first two games of this four-game weekend series in Fenway Park. How frustrating is it to lose two straight to this Red Sox team? Well, I mean, very frustrating. You know, we we understand, you know, where we are in the season and the calendar and, um, you know, know how important it is that we play really well. And, um, you know, I don't think anything's changed there. I still feel like we're playing really well. Obviously lost a very tough one last night and weren't able to mount enough tonight or build on a lead there in the second inning. Um, so it's, it's frustrating, but we also have a four o'clock game tomorrow. That's really important. It is really important. So who's starting for the Yankees tonight? Well, here's the lineup. LeMahieu, Gardner, Stanton, Odor is your cleanup hitter. Torres is batting fifth. Greg Allen in right field is sixth. Chris Gittens is seventh. Estevan Floreal is eighth. And Rob Brantley is catching and batting ninth because Gary Sanchez left last night's game with back spasms. And a little while ago, Boone gave an update on his starting catcher. Uh, doing a little bit better today. Um, uh, it's been getting, getting a lot of treatment today is, you know, get him going to move around now in the weight room as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully get him to where, uh, he's back in play for us tomorrow. Um, so a little bit of improvement, but, 
still, you know, didn't get a real good night's sleep and, and was pretty locked up still this morning. So, uh, but a lot of good treatment and, and I would say doing better. You look at the lineup today, you know, you got Gardner, a 190 hitter, batting second. Allen, who's been good, but he's not a 500 hitter, a not 400 hitter. You're, you're waiting for him to regress to the mean. He's batting sixth. Chris Gittens, great story, had his first major league hit, his first major league home run when the Yankees were up in Buffalo earlier this season. He's not a major league player. Neither is Rob Brantley. Brantley was catching the other night when Kriske was throwing those four wild pitches. At least three of them should have been either caught or blocked by a major league catcher. Even Gary Sanchez would have blocked at least one or two of them, and we all know that is not Gary's forte. So I don't want to put 100% of the blame on Krisky. That got ugly, and that was a rough finish to that game. But Brantley certainly didn't help out the Yankees' backup catcher. But that's the state that this team is in. With this $200 million-plus payroll, they're in the position where in a game you got to have in Fenway Park, you run out of pitchers. You ran out of relief pitchers to the point you had to throw Brooks Krisky out in the 10th inning with a one-run lead. And you're at the point now where you need to bounce back after losing two straight games and you're relying on the Chris Gittenses and the Rob Brantleys and the Greg Allens in your starting lineup. $200 million does not buy you what it used to. Overall, what does Aaron Boone think the current state of the Yankees is? You know what, Dan? I don't even look at it that way. It's like we got the Red Sox and Evaldi and we're, you know, we're playing, you know, we got to go out and get a win. I mean, and that's kind of been our mindset here, you know, for several weeks now. It's like we understand the situation we're in. Um, you know, we can't control what what moves are or aren't going to be made. We got to go out and try and rack up wins, and we got a tough one today. And we're gonna we're gonna go fight like heck to get it. the The theme of the season, though, has been every time you think this team is about to turn a corner and go on a little bit of a hot streak adversity strikes lately in the form of an absolutely brutal loss, and then they go into a tailspin. How long will this tailspin last? Will it last two games? Can Tyone come up with something this afternoon? Can they get a couple of key hits and stop the bleeding at a two-game losing streak and then go for the split of the four-game set tomorrow? Or is this going to snowball out of control again? And you look at the calendar... There is one more full series before the trade deadline, and it's against Tampa Bay. It's at Tampa Bay Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week. So these next two games against the Red Sox today and tomorrow afternoon at Fenway Park are going to go a long way toward determining what the Yankees do ahead of Friday's trade deadline. Connor Rogers, the lead NFL draft analyst who covers the NFL for Bleacher Report, hopping on with us now to get us set for everything that's going on. Connor, how you doing, man? Good, Pat. How are you, man? Long time no talk. Always good to catch up with you. Always good to get your thoughts, especially leading into a season with so many question marks and really some optimism and expectations uh, in this town. But let me start big picture with you, Connor. As training camps get set to open, what is your biggest storyline across the NFL? Well, it has to be Aaron Rodgers, right? Just when you look at the situation that keeps getting more interesting day by day, it's now reached the uh, climax of not just affecting Rodgers, but arguably their other best player on the team in Devontae Adams. And, you know, a lot of interesting posting going on between the two on Instagram. 
a lot of noteworthy things like Adams' party and the Packers not talking extension anymore where he would be expected to be one of the biggest free agents we've seen in a while after this season. And, of course, Pat, the most important thing here, will Aaron Rodgers actually show up to camp? I think with the way the CBA is designed right now, uh, guys really can't hold out. They just lose too much money. They've really eliminated the possibility of actual holdouts, and that's why you've seen such a, such a limited amount of them over the recent years since the last CBA was, uh, was agreed upon. And I think there's a lot going on with Rodgers, rumors of retirement, rumors of him you know, maybe coming back and actually just you know, biting his tongue and playing for the Packers as unhappy as he is. And that much because not only is it the reigning MVP of the league, but more importantly, this is a Green Bay team with Super Bowl aspirations and expectations. And that rattles the NFC much bigger than just the actual division they're in in the north there, but the actual conference. So that's the one that everyone is going to have their eyes on until one of the sides really blinks. Are you surprised that at this point with training camp just about here that he's still a part of the organization? And as far as we know, planning on playing this year? I am. I think it's a mistake. And maybe I'm just too immune to the emotional side of this. But when things reach this point, right, on a much smaller scale, but here's a local example for you. Last year, Joe Douglas, and it was around this time of year, maybe you know a little over a year ago, Joe Douglas and the Jets realized their franchise player in Jamal Adams. Now, Aaron Rodgers has a much bigger impact on the Packers than Jamal Adams will ever have on anyone, so it's a little different. But on a local example, the Jets just knew that he didn't want to be here. And before things got really, really bad, they had to capitalize on the value, and they got great value for him. Now, it's much tougher to replace a quarterback, but Green Bay took a quarter. They took Aaron Rodgers' replacement in the first round very recently where they've already said, we think this is the guy of the future when Rodgers' time is done here. And considering when they took him, they thought Rodgers' time would be done much earlier. They didn't expect him to win an MVP. So I think it's, it's really tough. They're in a situation where, yes, you can potentially lose the fan base. Yes, it causes a lot of issues. But they should have just got this trade done. It's really as simple as that. They could have gotten three first-round picks plus for him in return. They could have started to build this team around Jordan Love. They already made the hardest decision, and that was drafting Rodgers' replacement. But to do this game of sitting on the fence and not really making a decision either way, it just hurts everyone involved. I agree, considering especially the fact that, like you mentioned, they, they have the guy who they deemed Rodgers' successor on their roster. That, that would have given them a lot of runway to make a move. But let me ask you this, Connor. What do you think this season, what, what is the most likely outcome for the Rodgers-Green Bay scenario? Oh, man. I, I mean, I know I could tell you Denver and the Raiders, they, they both would love to have him. I, I think everybody knows out there that, you know, as solid as Derek Carr has been, John Gruden, I mean, he's got to get it right. He's on this 10-year deal, and not much has gone right for him uh, in this limited time since returning they would probably, I would think they would look into giving up a lot for him. Of course, Denver, I think, would be more aggressive and give up everything because they're a roster that could compete for, you know, the conference. They could win the AFC. They could actually challenge the Chiefs if they had a player like Aaron Rodgers. Everything else on their roster is really, really good. But between Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater battling to play quarterback, that's not even enough to really maybe not even finish second in the division. That's going to be a close call as well. So I think when you look at it, those are the teams that would probably love to have them. But nobody knows if Green Bay's really – it's kind of crazy, right? If they haven't blinked by now, what are they really doing? It's clear that they think – they're convinced, I guess, internally, that he's going to budge and he's going to come back and he's going to play out this year, and that's going to be that. No matter what contract extensions they've offered him, 
whether it's to be the highest paid player in the NFL, all those things along those lines. It seems like they are not going to, they're not willing to let Aaron Rodgers go. So I would, my gut feeling is he comes back and plays. I know everybody, even the sports books right now, are almost assuming that he's retiring if you just look at the expected win total for the Packers. But I can't see him doing that. We never see an MVP walk away like this, a guy that has so much aspirations, championship aspirations. It would really shock me if this is it for Aaron Rodgers. Connor Rogers getting a set for NFL training camp, covers the league for Bleacher Report. Connor, the awful tragedy um, this week with the Jets and, and the passing of, of their passing game coordinator, Greg Knapp, who died five days after getting hit by a car while he was riding his bike uh, in California. The Jets and Knapp's family releasing emotional statements over the past couple of days. What can you tell us about Knapp and, and about the way the Jets are dealing with this tragedy? Well, a historic career, right? a really celebrated career. This is someone who was the offensive coordinator at the height of Michael Vick's success in Atlanta and has worked with so many successful quarterbacks across the NFL that, you know, the, the outpour of support for him since this tragedy, you know, just goes to show you how many different players and people he touched, he worked with, uh, that loved to be coached by him or loved to be around him in the facility. And it's a big blow for the Jets. Make no mistake about it. I think you know, obviously all the thoughts are, are with his family right now and with the Jets because this is someone that in a short period of time, I, I think judging by even Zach Wilson's social media, had made a big impact on their number two overall pick and expected starting quarterback. And, you know, of course, they, they have a, it's a little different from the Adam Gase staff where they have a lot of guys on the staff. They have someone in, in Calabri, Rob Calabrese as a quarterback's coach. They have Michael Flores, the offensive coordinator, where they have a lot of different position coaches on the staff that are – architects of the offense but there is no way to you know you, you just can't underestimate and the loss of nap on the quarterback specifically on what this pass game wants to do and having a guy that's just so seasoned right you look at the staff and you know it's, it's tough to talk about the football side of this with such a tragedy you know obviously in this industry we work in you have to at some point you have a first-time play caller in Michael Floor, a very, very young guy in his 30s right now. Even the quarterback's coach in Calabrese is, is a really, really young guy. Knapp was the, the veteran coach there with so much experience. When things go wrong, who do you lean on? Those are the guys you lean on. So, so his loss is just – it's really sad, and it's, it's a huge, tough, tough first sign of adversity for this new Jets regime. It's it's a terrible loss. It's a terrible tragedy, as we know. Um, let's try to transition to talk about the Jets on the field, which I know is difficult. But outside of the tragedy, or independent of the passing of Knapp, there there did seem going into training camp, Connor, to be a lot of optimism at Jets camp. Is that fair to say? And and why? I think it's completely fair to say. I just think that you know sometimes Pat, it comes down to being as simple as you have better players on the field. And for the Jets right now, they've done such a a good job of improving what's around the young quarterback, right? And this is a franchise that is very used to having a young quarterback in this situation as Sam Darnold was there the last three years. And now they transition to the Zach Wilson era. Well, it looks a little different, right? You have a veteran wide receiver come over on a big money deal and Corey Davis, who is one of the best contested catch players in the entire NFL. And Zach Wilson has done a lot of work uh, away from the Jets, right? Away from the eyes of the coaches, with guys like Elijah Moore, who's going to be a big-time rookie impact for them, I think, with his speed threat. With someone like Corey Davis that, you know, really blossomed with Ryan Tannehill having his breakout in Tennessee. And then, of course, you have a, you were able to get a veteran like to come back on a restructured deal. 
you know, I know people are low on Denzel Mims because of the injuries, but I think he could be a big-time red zone threat, and the staff loves that him and Corey Davis are just such great run blockers for an outside, uh, outside zone, wide zone rushing scheme where that's a big-time factor. So, and, and honestly, the most important thing of this all is that the offensive line is just so much more improved. With Elijah Vera Tucker at left guard, year two of Mekhi Becton, and Morgan Moses at right tackle, they got some depth behind them and George Fant. They think Connor McGovern's going to be much better at center with better talent around him and better coaching and, and just a, a actual scheme, an actual identity on that side of the ball. So there, there is justified optimism with the Jets' offense. Are they going to be a top-ten unit? I, I don't think there's any expectations for that. But are you going to see an actual identity and a step in the right direction? I really do think so. Connor Rogers of Bleacher Report, our guest, getting us uh, set for the start of NFL training camps coming up this week. Uh, ultimately, of course, the most important guy is the quarterback taken number two overall, and I know it's difficult to give an accurate assessment until he's on the field consistently, Connor, but you know, what are the early reports from Zach Wilson? Well, I think the, the work ethic is phenomenal, and that's, that's really the thing you can get a feel for right away when these guys get to the facilities. How are they taking the coaching? What are they doing off the field, right? Because there's just limited reps of what you could do in the spring. And now at the CBA, there's really limited reps of what you could do in August. There's no more two-a-days. There's not these long kind of practices or these, these overextended scrimmage periods where, you know, you're going to have to do a off the field to catch up to guys that have been in the league. And I don't know if that's even possible, but Zach Wilson is going to do everything he possibly can to get there. And I think that that's something that people inside the building, uh, you know, and some people I've talked to are just, they're blown away. They're, they're really excited. They're excited from what they've seen in those, those limited practices. They're excited about his energy and, and the overall personality of the guy. So I think that, you know, it's weird. The Jets have, have a history recently of really not doing right by young quarterbacks or quarterbacks in general. But with Wilson, this is a totally different era where they got the right talent around him. Uh, they think they have the right coaches around him. And he's walking into a situation, besides Trevor Lawrence, he, he's getting those number one reps where – you know, Justin Fields, he's not going to come into Bears camp and get those number one reps. Trey Lance of the 49ers, Mac Jones of the Patriots, those guys are not coming in and getting the rep workload because they have veterans in front of them. But with Trevor Lawrence and with Zach Wilson, uh, that makes a big difference when you're the guy in camp. And you know what? You take a guy number two overall, I like that. that you say, hey, you, you have to earn it, of course, but why are we going to beat around the bush here? Why are we going to waste any time? Let's get this guy the number one reps and get him as much of a workload as we can. You know, Zach Wilson with the new coach, with the new quarterback, is going to be given more leeway than the other New York quarterback because it's year one for Zach Wilson and it's year three for Daniel Jones. And the Giants, despite their record, almost won the division last season. And there were signs of improvement, I thought, for Jones before he went down with the ankle injury late. Um, but now there's expectations. And now it is year three. And now there, there is going to be an expectation to make the playoffs for this young quarterback. Is he ready for all of that? Well, he's got the talent around him to do it, and, and I think that's a good sign by this Giants regime is that Dave Gettleman, you know, really has gone out and said, okay, you know, we're going to find out one way or the other, and this was the guy that we took as early when we did, when we didn't think, you know, when a lot of people were questioning the pick, including myself, to be fair, and I think that, you know, Daniel Jones has a fair shot now, right? I still have questions about this offensive line. I think that's my biggest concern is how much time will he really have, but Kenny Galladay has signed as a true number one wide receiver, uh, you have guys across the board that can make plays, whether it's Darius Slayton, you know, whether it's a Sterling Shepard. Of course, they drafted Kadarius Toney, who's off to a little bit of a slow start for various different reasons through OTAs and now training camp being put on the COVID list. But somebody they think could still make an impact. And when will Saquon Barkley be back? I think it'll be very early. I think he'll be good to go. And, and they'll get him a pretty good-sized workload as a, as a pass catcher. So 
He's got a lot of help around him. And traditionally, when you look at quarterbacks, year three is the sweet spot that you learn a lot. And the Giants franchise knows this because the first couple of years with Eli Manning uh, were very, very tough years. And then the green light came on, and he turned into obviously a tremendous quarterback for a while for them after a couple tough years. So he's got a fair shot, and that's the most important thing right now, Pat. And if it doesn't work out, it's it's not going to be blamed on – you know, I don't think it'll be blamed on the coaching staff. They're still a young and newer group. I don't think it'll be, it'll be blamed on the talent around him. I think this is really – this is up to Daniel Jones one way or the other. A couple more with Connor Rogers from Bleacher Report. You mentioned Kadarius Tony, the first-round pick, off to a rough start. And, and as we saw yesterday, placed on the uh, reserve COVID-19 list. But, but overall, what else went into this rough start or slow start, maybe, to the uh, NFL career of Kadarius Tony? Yeah, I think it comes down to it. You know, I know there was some problems. It seemed like with cleat issues in OTAs and overall just being able to get out on the field and and whatever was going on with the turf and with his shoes. And, you know, I think it's also a situation, too, where he's not coming into the Giants as, you know, Jamar Chase is with the Bengals, right? Jamar Chase is going to come in. He's got familiarity with Joe Burrow. He's probably expected to be a 1,000-yard wide receiver from day one as a rookie, where Tony's coming into a situation where he's kind of a unique player. You know, they got Kenny Galladay as a number one. Uh, They have players in the number two and number three roles already that they feel good about, where he's not only going to have to earn those reps, but he's also someone that you want to manufacture your touches to, whether you want to get him involved on jet sweeps, screens, find a way to get the ball in his hand. Florida did it, you know, with Dan Mullen, did a really good job of that with Tony, and that's why he was a breakout player as a senior. He was somebody that... Early on, whether it was injuries or whether it just wasn't getting on the field at Florida, uh, he, he didn't really do much his first three years there. In the senior year, he exploded, and you could see all that raw talent, the ability to make guys miss, the ability to run through tackles, uh, make catches through traffic. So I think for the Giants, they have to find a way to be creative and get the ball in his hands, and there's a lot of threats around him, especially when Saquon Barkley's back on the field, that there won't be a lot of attention on him. So that's a lot of pressure on the staff to make sure they utilize this guy the right way. But when you take a guy 20th overall, uh, you better have a plan for him. So I expect that when he is ready to be on the field that they will. This uh, this Saquon Barkley you mentioned, <laughs> he was placed on the, the pup list yesterday, the physically unable to perform list. Do we read anything to, into that, or is he on track to, to contribute this season? I, I think he'll be good to go. I know he's been, you know, understandably – um, not giving a lot of details when people, you know, ask him the same question over and over again about if he'll be ready to go. I, guys, understandably, don't want want to say things when they're dealing with a medical situation that might not be fair to them, the team, or whoever it may be. And you're just going to see so many different names across training camps be put on this pup list because they want to ease guys back in. You know, the Jets are going through it with Quentin Williams coming off a foot injury. Uh, so there's always big stars that come into camp put on the pup list and. Most of the time, that's because you kind of know what they are already, right? When you look at Saquon, yes, he's a young player. I think he's still 24 years old. But you've already seen him, you know, to a star very quickly into the NFL at a position that rookies and, and young players have a lot of success. So I think with Barkley, there's no questions about the mental side of his game. He, he's someone that, you know, you could give him a week of practice, and, and I think he would ramp back up very, very quickly. He's just that kind of – uh, different level of, of, of physicality and, and special athleticism that the Giants don't want to do anything crazy here. They just don't feel like he needs to be in pads in July or probably the first week of August. And they'll re- they, he's a star player, and he'll get that star treatment. 
And I think early in September, when it's time to full go, I think Saquon Barkley will be good to go. Let me get you out of here on this, Connor. Look, they were a game away from winning the division last year, despite their 6-10 and 10 record. But as you look to 2021, is it foolish for the Giants to expect that if things go right, health-wise, et cetera, that they could and should win the NFC East? It's not foolish at all. I think there's interesting competition across the board, whether it's, you know, Dak being back with Dallas. We know what that offense can do. They still have a lot of questions on defense, the Cowboys. And then with Washington, it's kind of the opposite, right? They have, I think, one of the best defensive units in football, whether it's front four, which I I do decisively think is the best front four in football. And they added some talent to that secondary. And they also added speed in the middle of their defensive linebacker with their draft. So, but, you know, what what version of Ryan Fitzpatrick will we get this year? So it's it's so wide open. And then, you know, the Eagles are always this weird wild card threat where, you know, what what is Jalen Hurts going to be now that the Carson Wentz era is officially over? And when you ask yourself all of those questions, well, why shouldn't the Giants be expected to compete for the division? They're another great defensive team. They're, they're well coached by Patrick Graham. Uh, they are loaded in their secondary at, at all three corner spots. And, of course, you know, I think they've gotten better up front over the years. Leonard Williams has really, really blossomed there. So I think for the Giants, when you ask yourself or detail all of those questions, you go, well, that means if Daniel Jones is any good and justifying being a top-ten pick, the Giants should win the division. So it, it comes back to our early conversation, Pat, of we are going to learn a ton about Daniel Jones this year. And if the Giants do win this division, that looks like a bit of a dogfight right now. I think we'll have our answer. Connor, you covered a lot for us. It was uh, great catching up, and we're excited about the season. Thanks a lot. Oh, no problem. We'll talk soon, all right? Always good having you on the show. That's Connor Rogers, the lead NFL draft analyst for Bleacher Report, does a tremendous job. He's also the host of the That's So Mets pod. We didn't get a chance to talk Mets with Connor Rogers with so much NFL news on the horizon, but great job by him. We're going to switch gears right now and talk NBA because, uh, what, a mere 72 or so hours after the Milwaukee Bucks wrapped up their first NBA championship in 50 years. It is time for the offseason. The draft is coming up this Thursday, followed by free agency, followed by training camp. And here to break it all down for us, uh, giving us a few minutes on Saturday is uh, SNY's NBA insider, Ian Begley. Ian, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's always good to catch up with you and uh, perfect time to do so because, you know, obviously, you know, unique Knicks season, the the, the fan base was re-energized, expectations were exceeded, and then we just had an entertaining NBA finals. But, you know, the Knicks fans kind of chomping at the bit here to to figure out, you know, what's next and, and, and what is that next step. But before we jump in on that, let me just get your big picture thought on the offseason, Ian. What do you think is is the first big domino that needs to fall this offseason to set everything in motion? Yeah, I think those first two big dominoes, Pat, will be Damian Lillard and whether teams get an indication that he is not going to ask for a trade before the draft or in the offseason, or if he is, and that to me is, is at the top of a lot of teams' lists, and I, I think the Knicks are waiting to, for clarity there as well. And uh, the other big name, obviously, is Kawhi Leonard, because uh, he can opt out. And uh, there was a report, I think, by Mark Stein that said that it's no longer a certainty that he would remain a Clipper. And that's, yeah, that's kind of been what everybody's been whispering about. So it starts with those two guys, in my mind, and then um, you work your way down. You know, it's funny because Kawhi Leonard, obviously, coming off, or he will be coming off an ACL injury. 
Uh, Kevin Durant was in a similar position two years ago when he left Golden State and signed with the Nets. I, I for one, was surprised at how little that injury seemed to affect him his first full season this year. Um, Is Kawhi kind of viewed throughout the NBA as able to bounce back from this injury in a similar fashion to how Durant was able to do it in Brooklyn? You know, Kawhi's had, obviously, a more extensive injury history uh, than Kevin Durant. So I think you factor that in into your team. But the way he has gone, I mean, obviously, the last few years of his career, you I think you'd make that bet if you're a team that, like the Knicks that are building, or if you are a team that feels like you're you know, Kawhi away from winning a title, I think you've been on Kawhi and his health if he's available. Um, just because of, of his recent history. You know, the Knicks season this year, 41-31, and 31, which was great. It came out of nowhere. It was a memorable season. As I mentioned, the fan base was, was re-energized. You had those full houses at Madison Square Garden during the playoffs, which were fun. But look, 41-31 and 31 in a first-round playoff exit. Now the, the goalposts have moved a little bit, right? The expectations have changed, and this is an important offseason for the Knicks because I look at a lot of teams in the Eastern Conference that are getting better the Boston Celtics, the Pacers, the Hornets, perhaps. Um, as you look at this Knicks offseason, what kind of is your priority list for them to improve this roster? What do you do with good guard? Can you add shooting? Can you add a player that can get a basket, kind of create his own shot, tilt the defense? And is, do you see Obi Toppin as a guy who can give you consistent minutes as a backup Four, so you don't have to play Julius Randle, uh, you know, 38 minutes a night. I think those are the things that I'm out looking at uh, from the outside. And I think that lead guard, you know, it's been a position of, of concern or, or instability for much of the last 20 seasons. So that's, again, you're looking at to find a long-term answer on lead guard. And, and I don't know if there's an easy answer out there in terms of this offseason. Uh, it's funny because all of the big names seem to have, you know, a, a flaw attached to them. You know, Chris Paul's age, you know, Damian Lillard is one of the best guards in the game, but you're going to have to give up a ton to get him. Uh, Kyle Lowry is up there in age. Let me ask you this. Th- those three guys I mentioned, Paul, Lillard, Lowry, and let's throw Spencer Dinwiddie in this mix. A- a- just gut reaction for you. Will the Knicks point guard be one of those four guys next season? Well, Spencer Dinwiddie is interesting to me because he's coming off an injury, and the Nets, they would have to spend a lot of money to keep him. Uh, it seems to me more likely than not that they would either let him walk or try to work out a sign-and-trade uh, to get some assets back if Dinwiddie does leave Brooklyn. So, to me, if I'm picking a name from, from those candidates, I would probably go Dinwiddie just because of his age, uh, the injury you have concerns about, but not you're not overly concerned about it. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because there are so many different ways you can go. The other thing to me is, is a big long shot because the first thing that has to happen is he has to request a trade. That hasn't happened yet. And he has, uh, I think, four years left on his deal. So it's not as if he can dictate where he goes. You know, he can kind of persuade certain teams to uh, to, to not trading for him by saying he doesn't really want to be there behind the scenes, but he can't really dictate uh, when and where he goes. So it would be a difficult proposition uh, for the Knicks to try to really get involved there. 
SNY's NBA insider Ian Begley. You can also catch him on the putback on SNY.TV is our guest here on ESPN New York. Uh, this week you wrote about Scott Perry um, getting a contract extension, the Knicks general manager, which, you know, when Leon Rose took over a year and a half ago, certainly did not seem to be a foregone conclusion that Perry would remain uh, with the organization. But overall, Ian, what is your opinion on this Knicks front office since Leon Rose took over in March of 2020? Yeah, I don't think, you know, we haven't seen a home run swing taken yet by this front office. I don't think you could point to anything where you'd say this was a glaring error. I think everything that they've done, um, you know, they've hit singles and doubles and, you know, Emmanuel quickly uh, came on a lot stronger than, Anybody could have seen. I think maybe they they felt like they would have gotten a little more from Obi Toppin uh, this past season. But on the whole, they have not made it an error where they have uh, hurt themselves from a flexibility standpoint. And to me, you really judge a regime when they make that big swing, when they go for a big trade, or they commit a ton of money to a free agent. And, you know, they haven't been faced with that decision yet. Uh, so I'm kind of waiting to see on that, but I think everything that you've seen thus far uh, on the whole has been a positive uh, with Leon Rose and, and the group that is working under him. Can can you see them taking that big swing this offseason, or do you see them remaining patient, or, or do you think they'll let the market dictate that? Yeah, I think you have to see what happens with Damian Lillard. You have to see what happens with Bradley Beal. Uh, you know, if those guys do ask out of their current situations, I know that the Knicks have, for a long time now, felt that they've got the assets to be in those kind of trade conversations. Uh, you know, I guess the difficult thing in, in a Lillard discussion specifically is if you're Neil O'Shea and you are trading the face of your franchise, you have to get, a, in my mind, a significant player back, like a player who is uh, already established as an all-star. The Knicks don't have that to offer, so... I think that gets a little tricky, but certainly I think they want to be in those conversations uh, if they, if it is possible. But outside of that, those like trade possibilities, sorry about a Lillard, I don't see it like a, an obvious answer uh, at lead guard via free agency. Alonzo Ball is, is out there. He's a very skilled player. You would be betting on him continuing to improve if you signed him to a large deal. Uh, there are others, other young guards who are available, like Devontae Graham, Kendrick Nunn. Uh, but there's no one that's an established sure thing where you'd say, if we get him for three years, he's going to lift us to exactly where we want to be. So everything's a little bit of a gamble. Ian Begley of SNY. Now, Ian, you were my guest when I was hosting the Michael K show on New Year's Eve. Okay, the Knicks at the time were three and two. So I'm going to circle back to a question I asked you that day. And it was premature on my part, but I wanted to ask it because with the Knicks at three and two, I asked you at the time if the perception of the Knicks around the league had changed, and you told me that it was way too early to tell that. So we've got a season in the books under Tibbs, 41-31. and 31. They went back to the playoffs. They had a home court advantage. Uh, as you look at the Knicks right now, has the perception of the Knicks changed after this first season under Tom Thibodeau? Yeah, I can, I can only speak to the, the people that I'm in touch with, and you know those people who deal with several, like every team in the league, um, and they've dealt with the Knicks in the past, but by and large, they've had positive things to say about the regime, you know, their, their responsiveness to uh, the agents out there looking to seek information about where the Knicks stand on something. 
they feel like they, they're able to communicate with the front office well. Uh, I, I think that that's a positive. And then you look at this foundation that was, was built this season, because I think it's safe to call it that. This was a very good first step for them. This was a first step that no one saw them taking. So I think players around the league, they want to win if they're looking to change their current situation. They want to win. And what New York did this past year was they showed these players that, hey, we're on the way, we're on the pathway to uh, building something, uh, building a winner, and maybe you can help us, you know, go over the top. You can take us to the next level because we have this young core in place and we won 41 games and we were the fourth seed in the East. So definitely a positive, positive step. But, I, you know, the perception stuff, to me it matters, but what matters more, the, the big issue is, like, when you go for that home run swing, how do you do? What happens? Does it work out? Is it the right move? And again, we're, you know, we're waiting to see uh, when that will happen with the Knicks, whether it's this offseason or a future offseason trade deadline. And when you look at the Nets, I'm of the opinion that as you watch the playoffs in their entirety, uh, it proved to me anyway that if Kyrie Irving didn't sprain his ankle against Milwaukee, they were the best team and they were the team that would probably have won the NBA championship. Uh, do they run it back this year and hope for better health, or do they have to find better backup plans considering the injury history of their top three guys? You know, they don't have a ton of uh, they don't have a ton of flexibility, Pat. But I think they can, depending on how the offseason shakes out. There are moves they can make to uh, create some money to spend in free agency, or obviously they could also uh, have some trade options as well but I, I think that generally I, I agree with you like if those three were healthy throughout the postseason I don't see any reason why you wouldn't think that the Mets win the NBA title so based on that you know if you could bring Bruce Brown back if yeah, I don't with Den, Denley it's gonna be tough to bring him back but if you could bring the the rotation guys back by and large and maybe maybe you get a veteran guard who can come in if Harden's hurt, if Irving's hurt, uh, and just hope that those guys stay healthy when it matters most. To me, that's a sound approach based on what we saw from them uh, in the playoffs when everyone was healthy. Regarding superstars and the next one who could be available, uh, Bradley Beal's name has been mentioned for forever, it seems, and obviously Lillard mm -hmm. is, the, is the most recent name. Is there anyone else who we should be looking out for, not even necessarily now, but down the line, whose name could be added to that list of, you know, recent superstars like Anthony Davis and, and, and Jimmy Butler and guys who wanted to move on. You know what? You looked at the situation in Utah before Donovan Mitchell signed his extension and people around the league were, were keeping an eye on that, seeing where that might go. But that seems to have settled uh, because he did sign that extension. You know, that said, there were reports about Mitchell not seeing eye to eye with team medical staff about, he was hurt, him wanting to play. Uh, but I think, by and large, you would expect him to not be available in the near future. The name to keep an eye on to me is Zach Levine in Chicago because he is entering a period where the Bulls could sign him to an extension. I think they could sign him to a very big extension if they made some moves to create enough money. And then if that doesn't happen, he would be a free agent in 2022. So, to me, that's that's the next name to keep an eye on, see where things shake out between uh, Levine and the Bulls. Obviously, the Bulls uh, made a big move trading for uh, Vucevic at the trade deadline 
last year, the big from Orlando, and, and made it clear that they're looking to win. And so I think people are going to keep an eye on that situation, especially early on this year, and, and see how things shake out. Ian, there truly is no more off-season, and uh, I appreciate you hopping on with me for a few minutes and getting us set for this important off-season today. Thanks a lot. Pleasure is all mine, my friend. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hopefully in person. Thanks a lot, Ian Begley of SNY, their NBA insider. You can also catch him on the putback on SNY.TV. Zach Levine, interesting name because, look, he was a guy before last year who, to me, was a good stats, bad team guy. He could give you 20 to 25 points a game, but it never led to winning. Now, the Bulls still had a disappointing year last year. I think they expected to make the playoffs, especially after they made the trade for Nikola Vucevic at the trade deadline. But there were extenuating circumstances to why they didn't make the playoffs last year. Because after the Vucevic trade, Levine got COVID-19. And he was out for a couple of months. And the Bulls completely fell out of the playoff race. Look, it was their first year... Under Billy Donovan, it was uh, he, who's a very good coach, and, and I think they're in good hands there. But a lot of things went wrong for the Bulls last season. So Levine ends up averaging 27.5 points per game. And in my mind, he took that step from a guy who could put up 25 a game but doesn't really contribute to winning. To Even though the Bulls went 31-41, and 41, I think Zach Levine took that step last year to a guy who can contribute to a winning program. And and people take that step. Another guy who took that step this year, more famously, was Devin Booker. Booker could score 20 to 25 points rolling out of bed the first four or five years of his career. Now you bring Chris Paul in, you get a little structure in Phoenix, and all of a sudden Devin Booker's the leading scorer for a team that goes to the NBA Finals. And I don't want to credit Chris Paul 100% for that because Devin Booker started to turn into that guy in the NBA bubble last year. The bottom line to me, though, for the Knicks is, and it's funny because I'll tie this in a little bit to the Yankees point that I made to open the show about how the timing just seems to be off for the Yankees team of 2021. That's the deal for the Knicks. The timing just seems to be off for the Knicks. And here's my reason why. Two years ago in 2019, you had two teams that exceeded expectations, one in each conference, one in each major media market, the Clippers and the Nets. And the Clippers were coached by Doc Rivers, and they were moving on from the Chris Paul experience. Chris Paul had moved on to uh, Houston by that point, and... They were led by Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Tobias Harris, and a bunch of young, hungry, talented players. And Doc Rivers did a terrific job with them. He got them into the playoffs, and they actually won a couple of games against the Warriors. And that was the Warriors before their dynasty crumbled. While that was going on out west, here in Brooklyn, Kenny Atkinson was doing the same thing with the Nets team that had D'Angelo Russell. He rejuvenated his career. You had Jared Allen. You had Joe Harris. Great reclamation project. Spencer Dinwiddie, great reclamation project. And in both cases, both teams whose culture in past years had been stained for different reasons. The Clippers were a perennial playoff team under Doc Rivers, under Chris Paul, but they never experienced the expectations that were set out for them. The Nets had sunk to the depths of the NBA. The Nets were the worst team in the NBA. Anyway, Both teams in 2018-2019, 
go to the playoffs in their respective conference. The Nets were 42-40, and 40, completely changed the culture while at the same time clearing up cap space for the upcoming offseason. Sound familiar? This should sound familiar, Knicks fans, because that is exactly what the Knicks did this past season under Tom Thibodeau. They changed the culture. They went to the playoffs. They have the most cap space in the NBA, up to $50 million this offseason at their disposal. Now, what's the biggest difference between the Clippers and the Nets, who in 2019 went from playoff teams to championship contenders? What's the difference between those situations and the current Knicks situation? The biggest difference, unfortunately, for the Knicks is the market. That offseason, Kyrie Irving was a free agent. Kevin Durant was a free agent. And Kawhi Leonard was a free agent. Kawhi Leonard is from Southern California and wanted to go home even after leading Toronto to the NBA championship. He went to the Clippers on one condition, that they also trade for Chris Paul, which they gladly did because it got them Kawhi Leonard. For the Nets, it was a perfect storm. Kyrie Irving wanted to come home. He had fallen out of favor in Boston and vice versa. Wanted to come back to the franchise he rooted for as a kid. Kevin Durant, who throughout his career has been impressionable, great player, but he's been impressionable. Irving took the lead in this situation, had the ear of Kevin Durant, and guided him to Brooklyn alongside him. It was the perfect storm for both of those franchises. Now you look at the Knicks this year, what do you got? You don't have Kevin Durant available. You don't have Kyrie Irving available. You don't have Kawhi Leonard available. Now the Knicks had the cap space two years ago. But what didn't the Knicks have two years ago? They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the culture. Irving and Durant looked at the Nets and they're like, yeah, let's go play with Dinwiddie and Joe Harris and Jared Allen and Karis LeVert and these young, talented guys who are hungry and have a really good system and really good culture. The Knicks didn't have that two years ago. Two years ago, what the Knicks had was David Fisdale in a 17-65 and 65 record, and they famously struck out in the offseason, although history has shown that they didn't completely struck out, be, strike out because they ended up signing Julius Randle. They ended up signing Reggie Bullock, among others. But it wasn't Kevin Durant, and it wasn't Kyrie Irving. It wasn't the type of moves that instantly turned them into an NBA championship contender. So the timing isn't right for the Knicks. And you look at every single guy who could improve their team, and I mentioned the names to Ian Begley a minute ago. You look at every single guy who could improve their team. Chris Paul. Well, you know what? I was on this station three weeks ago saying the Knicks have to go after Chris Paul. Well, now after watching the NBA Finals, I've changed my mind. Because Chris Paul showed his age, showed his wear and tear in games four, five, and six of the NBA Finals. So now I'm double, you know, giving it second thought. Do you really want to give $110 million in three years to a guy who's going to be 37 next season and clearly showed signs of fatigue at the end of this season? Damian Lillard, you got to give up a ton. Where did you start? You start with R.J. Barrett. How about a little Emmanuel quickly? And how about four first-round draft picks? And that still might not even be enough to get it done. It could be Carmelo Anthony all over again. Spencer Dinwiddie, good player. Really good player. 20-point-a-game guy. He can shoot from the outside. Certainly would be an upgrade at point guard over 
Alfred Payton, but he's coming off an injury. And then Kyle Lowry, similar to Chris Paul, although not as good and not quite as old. The uh, NBA offseason is upon us. And, you know, Knicks fans and the Knicks organization, more importantly, has had about a month, month and a half since the end of what was a very enjoyable and successful season uh, to put the plan in place to improve the roster because improvements have to be made. Clearly, we saw that in the round one five-game loss to the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, Julius Randle had a phenomenal season, all-star, second-team All-NBA, earned all of it, deserved all of it. When you watch the playoffs, Randle isn't a number one guy. And at this stage in his career, I I don't know that that's something that he can grow into or develop into. I'm not going to say the same thing for R.J. Barrett. He's just 20 years old. He's been in the league for two years. The improvement from year one to year two was phenomenal. So I still think there's a lot of growth for R.J. Barrett. And R.J. Barrett's a guy who has the mentality. Now, will he have the skills, the physical skill set to become that guy? He's got the mentality to become a number one guy for a team that goes deep into the playoffs. Let's get back to the phones. Let's go to Jock in Rockland. Hey, Jock. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. No problem. So, um, you know, no doubt, no doubt. So, with the Knicks, right? Um, um, I'm not, I'm not a big, you know, believer in um, trading. Um, you know, making these big trades like for Bill or literally because it'll be like you know Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony all over again. All these first round picks gone and starting players gone, and you know it'll be a same situation where you're just banking on free agency to see if you can make something happen. Now, um, I like what we're building right now. We build something nice, um, and it'll be good just to add to what we have. So um, I'm, I'm of the mindset of adding, and the two pieces I see out there as free agents that would really help the team in positions of need is um, at point guard and small forward, which would be Lonzo Ball and Kawhi Leonard. Now, um, a lot of people, you know, frown when I say Kawhi because he's, he's at the Clippers. But, um, you know, they, they had like a two-year audition. And I know Kawhi, you know, he's a businessman. He's all about his money. And they couldn't make any noise in a West that was injured. You feel me? That They had an opportunity to steal a ring this year. But even in the injured West, they couldn't make it, you know, to the, um, to the finals or whatever the case is. So, yeah, but, Chuck, let me Kawhi just say this. I think, I think they would have made it to the finals if Kawhi didn't get hurt. Um, that's a possibility. I think I think it, it just would have made it a better series, to be honest. Because um, Phoenix is, you know, they're they're a really good team. And outside of you know PG thirteen and Kawhi, there was there, there was not much, you know, really going on with the Clippers. You know, in, in regards to you know much help. You know, with the exception of Reggie Jackson, maybe. But they, they you know, there wasn't there there weren't. You know, I didn't really believe that they they could you know really make noise or make it to the finals. Now with the defensive minded, you know, you know situation with Tom Thibodeau and these two players that are defensive-minded players as well as being able to score, I think that would make the Knicks like a maybe, you know, number one or number two um, team in the East. You know what I'm saying? If you bring back these these players that we had, like, you know, Noel and Reggie Bullock and um, maybe even Alec Burks or, you know, things like that because these guys have now come off the bench and, you know, make our bench even stronger, you know. But, you know, these, these, these two pieces I think would be essential in, in adding and um, it would be awesome, man. I, I hope you know Leon Rose could um, could do something like that. Well, he, he's definitely working on it, Jock. Thanks for the call. I mean, there, there's a plan in place, obviously. What is the plan? Who knows? Because there's not that home run, you know, 
staring you straight in the face, perfect solution to improve this roster. Every which way you turn to improve this roster has warts. Um, I like the Lonzo Ball name, and that's, that's one that's been floated out for a while. He's a restricted free agent, so the Knicks would make him an offer and sign him to an offer sheet, and New Orleans would have a chance to match that. Um, ball can obviously handle the ball. He's a good playmaker. He significantly improved his outside shooting. He's got good size, so he can be a, a good piece for you on the defensive end, which is important, especially in Tom Thibodeau's rotation. The, the point guard situation is where you've got to start. I mean, that has to improve. I, I, I can't see how it wouldn't improve, right? Because that, if you look at the playoff loss to Atlanta, as well as Atlanta played, I think they were a lot better than most of us thought they were based on the regular season performance. I mean, they were the best team in all five games of that series. Now, could the Knicks have stolen a couple more, at least game one? At Madison Square Garden, yeah, they could have. They could have gone up 2 nothing. That would have been interesting. But as you look at the totality of that series, the Hawks were the best team. But that series went off the rails when Tom Thibodeau had to remove Alfred Payton from the rotation because the one advantage the Knicks had up until that point was their bench unit, which was led by Derrick Rose. And once Rose went into the starting lineup, he continued to play great offensively in the starting lineup. But what does Rose as your starting point guard means? Number one, it means you're a lot weaker defensively. And I know nobody on the Knicks was stopping Trey Young, but Alfred Payton is a much better defensive player than Derrick Rose. And number two, with Rose in the starting lineup, that completely depleted your scoring off the bench, which had been a huge advantage. So the Knicks have to fix the point guard position. They need outside shooting. They just need somebody who can knock down shots on a consistent basis. Barrett shooting improved, but he's not that guy yet. Alec Burks was too hot and cold. Reggie Bullock was too hot and cold. And Burks and more Bullock is a guy who's not going to create his own shot. He's the prototypical 3 and D guy. And there's definitely a spot for that guy on any NBA team. He had a terrific season shooting threes and playing D, but he's not going to create his own shot. I mean, look at Reggie Bullock's stats from last year. The majority of his shot attempts were taken from behind the three-point arc on kickouts from Julius Randle or R.J. Barrett. All right, let's go to Eli in Washingtonville. Eli, what's up? Hey, what's going on? Uh, listen, Pat, I, I want to argue with you again. I like to argue with you every Saturday. Um, All good. That last call of take was... <laughs> That last call of was crazy. He said that the Clippers would have would have not gone to the playoffs. I mean, to the finals with Kawhi Leonard healthy. <laughs> that was the craziest thing I've ever. No, heard. I I, anyway. I agree. I mean, as it was, they took the Suns to six games without Kawhi Leonard. So look, it's clear that the two best teams this year would have been the Clippers and the Nets, but they were derailed by injuries. Yeah, you're absolutely right. These Knicks fans are delusional, man. Because. Listen, I understand you find you want to go with the draft picks and everything like that, but listen, when you have a chance to land Lillard, I don't care who you have to give. That guy is a, a difference maker just by himself on the court. And when it comes to draft picks, tell me the last superstar that the Knicks drafted. <laughs> okay, I'm still waiting. Exactly. Nobody, Keep right? Keep waiting. So, so they're not they're, – they're not good when it comes to, to, to picking up draft picks. That's plain and simple. They don't recognize talent well. Uh, they should have went for that point guard from Sacramento, and it's, it's Saturday where we're Obi Toppin. So, you know, the Knicks are not good when it comes to draft picks. 
Now, uh, let me t- touch on, on, like, the championship and, and, and the Nets. The Nets, listen, have to do absolutely nothing. Because I believe that the Nets, I'm telling you, they were uh, a, a, inch, uh, a shoe size away from beating the world champions. And you could say that these guys, I know Giannis goes everywhere with this trophy, and he went to talking about super teams, which I like because, you know, he went at LeBron. You know, LeBron is like the the the, the, the kingpin when it comes to this uh, super team nonsense. But you know what? The guy needs to, like, humble himself a little bit because he, he had two teams that were injured and then went against the Suns that, uh, again, Aiton was scared the whole game. And I, Chris Paul faded, and that's why I wouldn't sign Chris Paul because Chris Paul – you know, when it when it comes to the finals or the or the playoffs, he's either hurt or he fades away. So I don't think the Nets have to do anything, but the net the Knicks do need to to make that trade if possible. If possible, they should do everything to get Lillard because the guy's a faithful a faithful guy to a team. Look at look how faithful he was in Portland, Portland, and the guy is a difference maker. And when you can see one person can't change the team. It's an interesting call, Eli, and thanks for the call. This is the central theme of this offseason for the Knicks as they look at things. There is no easy solution out there. And I, look, let me let me also say this. It wasn't easy for the Nets in 2019 um, to offer Kevin Durant a max contract. I think right now you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that was the easy solution, of course. It wasn't easy at the time. When Durant ruptured his Achilles in the NBA Finals a, a month before the free agency period began or, or a week before it began, I was in the camp of, you can't lock this guy up long-term. He's never going to be the same. Well, I was wrong, and a lot of people were wrong, and the Nets took that chance, and they were in position to take that chance. Um, the Lillard thing is such a tough call. First of all, when you're looking at a possible Damian Lillard trade, do I think that if he wants to leave Portland, he would be interested in coming to New York? Yes, I do. Because why wouldn't he? He's played in a small market his entire career. He does a ton of commercials. He's one of the most recognizable players in the NBA, but he feels largely that he hasn't gotten his. And for the most part, he's right about that. So I think he would want to come to New York because I think right now any big-name NBA player who's disgruntled or wants out of their current situation, whether it's Lillard, whether it's Bradley Beal, whether it's Zion Williamson, whether it's somebody else who's going to come down the pike. I think any of those people look at the Knicks right now, and you see Tom Thibodeau, and you see R.J. Barrett, and you see Julius Randle, and Emmanuel Quickly, and Obi Toppin, and Mitchell Robinson, and Madison Square Garden as it came alive last spring. I think any player in Lillard's position, looks at that situation and says, yeah, I want to sign up for that. Two years ago, that was not the case. Four years ago, that was not the case. That was the biggest hurdle that Tom Thibodeau helped the Knicks clear in his first season in New York. But now you got to find the right guy. And that's where things get tricky. Would the Lillard situation be exactly like Carmelo Anthony? No, it wouldn't. Because you have Julius Randle still in the prime of his career, second team All-NBA. And the Knicks actually have so many first-round draft picks right now that they could offer three or four of them to Portland in a Lillard trade and still have a few left over. Plus, they have more young talent. They're not going to have to give up all of Barrett, Quickly, Toppin, Mitchell Robinson. Maybe you have to give up two of them. Maybe you have to give up three of them. But you still have one or two of those young guys left over. You still have a second-team All-NBA player in Julius Randle in his mid-to-late 20s left over. And you still have some draft capital left over. So the Lillard thing would not be apples-to-apples with Carmelo Anthony and what happened in 2010. 
2011. But he's 31 years old. He's 31 years old. He's a great player. He really is. I mean, he is a difference maker, no doubt about it. And I truly believe he would want to come to New York. In fact, I do think he wants to come to New York. But it's a tough call for the Knicks. What is the price tag? That is going to be the ultimate decider if and when that opportunity is presented to the Knicks. 1-800-919-3776, the number to call. A lot of uh, Knicks discussion and NBA offseason so far. Meanwhile, you heard the update at the top of the hour. In Fenway Park, you're getting the typical 2021 Yankee-Red Sox game. And it's back to business as usual for Jamison Tyone after I was singing his praises earlier because this is who Tyone has been or was the first month and a half, two months of the season. A run in the first, a run allowed in the second, a run allowed in the third. And next thing you know, it's three to nothing. A listless Yankees offense going up against former Yankee and all-star, though not with the Yankees, Nathan Evaldi. It's three nothing. Evaldi through three and two-thirds innings has already struck out six Yankees. And look, this is who Tyone was the first month and a half, two months of his Yankees tenure. He's pitched much better lately, but he was a guy who never allowed that huge inning. He never allowed to get it out of control, but little by little, a run here, a run there, a run there. The Red Sox are putting up the picket fence on the Yankees right now, leading 3 to nothing in the top of the fourth inning. Again, 1-800-919-3776. Want to weigh in on the Yanks, want to weigh in on the Knicks, the NFL offseason. It's uh, all on the table, so we go back to the phones. Uh, Chris from Queens. Chris, what's going on? Hey, what's going on? Uh, by the way, super impressive, your rundown on Sexton. Uh, I was listening on the line. It was like you were the Colin Sexton expert. So incredibly well done. I enjoyed that. Um, the, the question I had is kind of about Tibbs, and I'm not a Tibbs hater at all. I love his style of basketball. Rodman's my favorite player of all time. I just think if the Knicks uh, decide to go the, the star route or bring in your, your Kawhis and your Dane Lillard, um, it's not going to work with Tibbs. He, he reminds me of a, a Harbaugh. If you don't have a young team or people that he's familiar with, his guys, uh, players get burnt out quite quickly. And I think you also have to be you know, reminiscent of the fact that the Knicks kind of saved Tibbs' reputation as well. After what happened in Minnesota, he was kind of old school. These new players aren't going to play for him. And essentially he had the 2011 Bulls plus a desperate Julius Randle. So, I just wanted to get your thoughts. If they go young and say that, I think he's the perfect guy. But if they do decide to, to kind of take that big bite and bring in some big stars, I'm not sure he is, is the coach. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's not a terrible point, Chris. Thanks for the call. But you gotta you got to take this thing one step at a time. You, you can't get that level of player unless you have the infrastructure. Now, Tom Thibodeau, like, like the caller said, his greatest success as a head coach – of the Chicago Bulls was with Derrick Rose, the youngest MVP in NBA history, a young Joakim Noah. Uh, he developed Jimmy Butler, who was a late first-round draft pick out of Marquette. Um, Luau Dang was a young player at the time. Kirk Heinrich was a young player at the time. That's who Tibbs' greatest success was with. And this Knicks team was not that. They had veterans on the team, and I think Tibbs showed this past season that he can work with the veteran player too. Now, it wasn't the veteran star player. Uh, Julius Randle was a little desperate this season. He came in to the start of training camp in the best shape of his career. It showed during the course of the regular season. You had a bunch of veteran guys on one-year contracts. Reggie Bullock, Nerlens Noel, Alfred Payton, 
So it was going to be Tibbs' way or the highway because those guys needed to play for their next contract. And they understood, and they understood this early, and credit to them, credit to him, credit to them. They understood this early that their best way of getting their maximum potential was to buy in and to buy in completely. Now, Tibbs is, what is he, 63 years old. He's not going to be around here forever. The next step this team needs to make is to bring in that star player. Let's bring in the star player. Let's bring in, you know, Damian Lillard, or let's bring in Zion Williamson, or whoever it turns out to be, Bradley Beal. Let's get the star player in here. Let's get the star player on the roster before you want to get rid of Tom Thibodeau and move on from him. And the other thing I'll say about Tibbs is this. Yes, I'll repeat my earlier point that his greatest success was with younger teams and younger players in Chicago. But he was not the same guy this last season that he was in Chicago or that he was in Minnesota. He had a year and a half out of the NBA after he was let go by the Timberwolves, and he did a lot of self-evaluation, and he watched the league, and he learned about the league. He kept his hand in it by working in television with ESPN, and when he came back to the Knicks, he was not the same guy. Now, tactically-wise, yeah, he was. He's, he's always been a great coach. X's and O's, hard work, putting together a game plan, He's always had that aspect. The criticisms of Tom Thibodeau, his latter years in Chicago, and his brief tenure in Minnesota was that he was too hard driving a coach. It was similar to two coaches who New York fans know very well. Tom Coughlin faced those same exact criticisms after his second season in New York. He and Michael Strahan hated each other to the point where Strahan was going to walk away. Tiki Barber ended up walking away. And Coughlin, after the 2006 season, when it looked like he was going to be two and done with the Giants, reevaluated himself, changed his approach, softened his demeanor, and the Giants won the Super Bowl that year. Two years after Coughlin did that, Joe Girardi was facing the same exact criticisms. After the Yankees missed the playoffs in 2008 in Girardi's first year, Girardi was too hard driving a coach, too many rules. Uh, didn't deal well with veterans, changed his approach in the offseason leading into 2009, and the Yankees won the World Series in 2009. So just because that's who Tibbs was in 2010, 2015, 2017, it doesn't mean that's who he is right now. He's a different guy right now. Just like a young basketball player can improve his three-point shooting by working at it, Tom Thibodeau improved his coaching by changing his demeanor and tailoring himself more to the modern NBA player. Because if he didn't, he wasn't going to last long. So look, let's, if you're the Knicks, the last thing you need to worry about is if Tom Thibodeau is the right guy to coach stars. Let's get the stars here first, and then we'll figure it out. And I'll tell you this, I'll take my chances with Tibbs being the right guy to coach Damian Lillard or you know, to coach Bradley Beal. Because you know what stars want to do? At the end of the day, you know what they want to do, especially guys who haven't done it before? They want to win. And if they look at Tom Thibodeau's work ethic and his competence and his track record, I think that's a guy who, a Damian Lillard, who has never won in his NBA career, and it's getting late early for him. I think that's a guy he would want to play for. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to uh, Frank and Yonkers. Frank, how you doing? 
Hey, Pat, great show. Uh, always a pleasure to listen to you. Uh, I heard you mention Joe Girardi. I wish we could have him right now. Uh, I'm a frustrated Yankee fan. Uh, they're losing to the Red Sox right now. I mean, the Red Sox have guys in Triple A that I would see. I would rather see get up with runners in scoring position than Stanton or any of these Yankees. They can never get a big hit. Uh, I thought that this core of players was going to uh, have a run of success similar to what the players did in the '90s, and uh, they're they're worse now. The Red Sox, in the meantime, have managed to rebuild and they beat the Yankees with three pitches that the Yankees basically gave to them for nothing, out of Vino and uh, Ovaldi and uh, Whitlock. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to watch. But when players aren't playing up to their expectations, I feel that a coaching change is necessary, and I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me, let me go through a couple of the guys that were on the 2017 team that went within one game of the World Series under Joe Girardi. And, and let me ask you if you think they're better today than they were in October of 2017. Aaron Judge, is he better or is he worse today? Well, uh, no. I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't been able to stay on the field. It's not again. I mean, it, he just hasn't been able to stay on the field. He, he, I mean, you know what? He went from being the next Babe Ruth or possibly a Roger Maris to he's basically Bobby Mercer now. He's like a good player and a lousy team. How about Gary Sanchez? Better or worse today than in 2017? Ah, Gary Sanchez is awful. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him. I really don't. How about Aaron Hicks? Better or worse today than in 2017? I'm not, I'm not familiar with Aaron Hicks. Who is he? <laughs> good point. Frank, thanks for the call. The point is, Aaron Boone was spoon-fed a really young, exciting, on-the-verge, talented roster. And they're worse today than when he took over the team. Now, it's not 100% his fault, okay? Uh, Brian Cashman has to share in some of the blame. The injuries have to share in some of the blame. I mean, our last caller mentioned that you know, Aaron Judge, and Aaron Judge is about when he's healthy, he's about the same as he was in 2017. But w- there's that qualifier again, when he's healthy. You can't blame that on the manager. But overall, when you look at the roster and what they had in 2017, Aaron Hicks was starting to come into his own. Has he ever gotten any better? No. Gary Sanchez was on the verge of being one of the greatest hitting catchers in the last 50 years. Is he better? No. He's much, much worse. Aaron Hicks never got any better. Um, And then you add in the John Carlos Stanton piece to all of this, and that's not Boone's fault. That's Cashman's fault. And Cashman got good value for Stanton for who he was at the time. He was coming off an MVP season with the Marlins. And, yes, he didn't have to give up a lot in that trade for John Carlos Stanton, but you look at the impact that it has had on the roster, both financially and flexibility-wise with the lineup, And that has been a huge albatross for Aaron Boone. But at the end of the day, while I just gave six excuses for Boone and qualifiers for Boone, his job is to help this team win. And all you can look at is the results. He took over a team after the 2017 season that had come within one game of the World Series. Unexpectedly so. We all remember the 2017 Baby Bombers. They were at least a year, if not two, ahead of schedule. 
And that's the team that Aaron Boone was handed on a silver platter. Where are we four years later? Are they better or are they worse? If that's not the manager's responsibility, then why even have a manager? Let's go to Rob in Massachusetts. What's up, Rob? Hey, John. How are you? Good. How you doing? You there? Yeah, I'm here. What's on your mind, Rob? We got you. Go ahead. A couple of things about the Yankees. I'm watching the game, and obviously I'm disgusted, but I've never seen anybody take more lousy at-bats than John Paul Stanton in my life. I've never seen a guy look so bad at the plate in my life. What, what, what can they do to get rid of this guy? What can they do? I mean, they're, they're, their hands are tied. What could they possibly do? And the other thing is, like, what drives me crazy. Still there? I'm here. Okay. What, what drives me crazy about this team is that the players that they bring up in the minor leagues, I mean, I love watching the fact that Florio is playing, and I would play him every day. You know what? They need to just retool this team. Let's reach. Brian Cashman has done a lousy job. It's not Boone's fault that 40 million guys get injured, but Boone is not a great manager. Tell me what he does well, honestly. He doesn't do anything well. He mismanages the bullpen. It's, I mean, why do we have to see a different batting order every day? Can you please play the same batting order? And how do you bat Brett Gardner hitting 193 and bat him second? Why? Because he's a left-handed bat? Who the hell cares? He's hitting 193. And can we get somebody to replace Chris Giddings who's hitting 107? I mean, it's ridiculous. And it, it just, I mean, both guys have to go. And the ownership really is the most to blame here, okay? Because to me, Hal Steinbrenner really doesn't show like he really cares, okay? It doesn't show much that he cares. I mean, I don't know about, you know, you, but I'll get your thoughts about this. But I, it seems like the, the organization has just taken a back seat and settles now. The Yankees never settled, and it seems like they do. So, anyway, will they be buyers or sellers? That's, you know, we'll see what happens. But thanks. I'll get your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Thanks for the call, Rob. I mean, whether they're buyers or sellers, look – I think you can be sell or excuse me buyers in this next week. The trade deadline is uh, Friday, next Friday. I think you're buyers if there's a move out there that improves your team beyond this season. And Trevor Story to me is that move. Trevor Story is a terrific hitting shortstop. Uh, he's young enough that he could be in your future plans for at least the next half decade. And it also gets Glaber Torres off of the shortstop position because he's not a shortstop. And that has been proven in spades. Glaber Torres, something happened to him when he moved from second base to shortstop prior to last season. Now, he's been hitting well lately. Clearly, he's not good in the field as a shortstop. He's well below average defensively. But that would almost be acceptable if he continued to hit like Glaber Torres did his first two seasons in the major leagues, which he hasn't come close to approaching that except for a little hot streak over the last week since the All-Star break. So you get Torres, and this is why I was so in favor of either bringing back Didi Gregorius in the offseason, and I know Didi has had a rough season himself in Philadelphia, but I was so in favor of bringing back Didi Gregorius in the offseason because you've got to look at a move and see how many ways it can help the team. Didi coming back helps your team in numerous ways. Number one, we know he can play in New York. Number two, he's clutch. How many guys on the Yankees roster do you trust to come up to the plate in a big spot? Number three, Didi is a shortstop, so he would have gotten Glaber Torres out of the shortstop position. Number four, he's a 
left-handed hitter in a lineup that went healthy, and God forbid they're ever healthy, but in a lineup that went healthy is predominantly right-handed handed hitting. Well, you know what? They're not right-handed hitting right now because we got Brett Gardner, a lefty, batting second at 196, his batting average, and Rugnet Odor and his 223 average is your cleanup hitter. So finally, finally at least, the Yankees aren't too right-handed. The only problem now is they can't hit. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN.